Okay, Nehemiah chapter 3. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hanel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zuchar, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hasana built uh, the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoahites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Joida, the son of Basia, and Meshulam, the son of Besodeiah, repaired the gate of Yasana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them repaired uh, Melatiah and the Gibeonite, and Jadon the Merathite, the son of Gibeon, and of Mizpah, and the seat of the governor of the providence beyond the river. Next to them Uziel, the son of Hariah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Raphaiah, the son of Hur, a ruler of the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Joida, the son of Harumath, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabani, repaired. Malachijah, the son of Haram, and Hasab, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section of the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalem, the son of Halohesh, ruler of the district of Jerusalem, repaired, and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zanoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malaita, the, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hasarim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalem, the son of Koheza, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shalem of the king's gate as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah the son of Asbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethsur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Rehum the son of Bani. Next to him, Hash Hashiba, ruler of the district of Kilah uh, repaired uh, for his district. After their brothers repaired, Bavai, the son of Hendad, ruler of the half the district of Kaliah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of 
Haas repaired another section from the door of the house of uh, Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. Then, or after them, Azariah, the son of Masai, son of Anani, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benui, the son of Hanadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and tower, projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, Tech, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priest repaired each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emir, repaired opposite his house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hanani, the son of Shalemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalph, repaired another section. After him, Meshulah, the son of Barakiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, uh, Maltiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the mustard gate, and to the upper chamber of the corner, and between the upper chamber of the corner of the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Thus sends a reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, so much that you have given us your word. The very word of God. Lord, we don't always understand uh, the things that you have given to us. Lord, there's times we do understand. But just to be honest with you, sometimes our hearts are just not willing to obey. And we ask for your forgiveness, God, for such rebelliousness. Lord, other times we just struggle. Uh, Lord, we want to obey, but we just find ourselves not doing those things. But this morning, we pray that you would speak to us. Please speak the word of the living God to us and give us ears to hear and hearts to receive and to obey the word that you have given to us. Lord, give us a sense of turning to you and trusting in your spirit. God, that we might be a people that will be obedient to you. Lord, that we might live lives that it would be to bring glory and honor and praise and to see your kingdom go forth in the world in which we live. Oh, Lord, we thank you. I know these are big things to pray uh, with such a weak people, but we know that you are a mighty and a great God to answer such things. So praise be to your name, we ask. Amen. Well, I'm guessing that as we read through that list, you noticed a few things about this passage. First of all, there's a lot of Hebrew names that are very difficult to pronounce. That might be one of the things. The other thing that you may have noticed is there are very obscure details to gates and walls that only archaeologists and biblical scholars would probably love, okay? You know, uh, I'm guessing that for most of us, when we come to this portion of our reading and our daily devotions, especially if we're reading through the Bible in a year, I would say at best, People probably skim through the list, um, but it's probably not totally unlikely that some may just skip that chapter altogether and say, let me just go on to chapter 4 and uh, see what is there. 
And if you do that, you're not alone. Uh, there are commentators, <laughs> it's interesting to see the comments I make on Nehemiah chapter 3, and I mean no disrespect, but one of the comments was this, it is the least likely and stirring of the narratives of the Old Testament. That's not quite of a testimony, is it? You know, the least lively and stirring of the narratives of the Old Testament. One person honestly said, let's be honest, this chapter with its list of builders looks like something that belongs in an appendix at the back of a book. You know, and that's probably what we're thinking this morning. And we're like, wow, that's a lot of information. Um, and I'm guessing that probably for those of you that are very faithful to memorize scripture, you've probably not memorized too many verses from Nehemiah chapter 3. And I really doubt anybody has their life verse from Nehemiah chapter 3 either. Uh, but, you know, uh, if, we, if we look at this, you know, I do think that we, off, we, we probably are asking ourselves, why all these details? Why did God see fit to give us all these names and these families? And why did he mention all the portions of the wall? I mean, why would the Holy Spirit breathe forth God's inerrant word through Nehemiah and choose to, uh, to include so many seemingly mundane details? But brothers and sisters, let me encourage you, for all that I've already said, we need to remember this morning that this is the word of God. It is our only rule, our only standard for faith, for what we believe, and for our practice and how we live our lives. And so God's word is given to us this morning. And I want us to heed the word that is given to us and let us consider it uh, today and to do so very seriously. Now before we jump into Nehemiah chapter 3, I do want to back up a little bit and help you sort of see how this fits into Nehemiah chapter 2. If you look at Nehemiah chapter 2, uh, verse 17, Nehemiah has been out inspecting the walls. He's taken a few men with him. Um, he returns. And we read in verse 17 that he says to the people, up until this point in time, he had not told them what he was doing and what he was thinking about rebuilding the wall. But he says to the people in 2.17, Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. Now these were people that had started the wall and had been told to stop, who had been oppressed by their local leaders and stuff. And so they had been really beaten down. But when Nehemiah said this in verse 18 of chapter 2, at the, the last part of that verse, the people say, let us rise up and build. And it says, so they strengthened their hands for the good work. And before you know it, we're in chapter 3, verse 1, where priests and lay folks alike are now working on the wall. And so I, I want us to look at this text this morning and consider a number of things that are here. There may be more. But I just want to pull out a few things this morning that we might consider. The first thing that I want us to see in this building project is, is that these are ordinary people that are working together. These are ordinary people working together. And it's important to realize that this is not just some old building project. You know, this isn't you're adding a bathroom onto your house or, you know, turning a closet into a laundry room or, you know, things like that. Uh, they are working together for the kingdom of God. And, and we need to keep that in mind. You need to let that sink in. That they were working to do the work of God to build up his kingdom. You know, we oftentimes think of the temple as being the dwelling place of God. Uh, and that's true. But actually, the entire city of Jerusalem was the place where the Lord had put his name, as we read in the book of Deuteronomy. 
And so for the city to be in disarray was to uh, dishonoring to the Lord. And so the people of God were seeking for the glory of God. Now, I want us to think about this just a moment. As I was, as, even as I came to this point in my sermon, it really struck me that they were working for the kingdom of God. And I thought to myself, you know, when we serve the Lord at Kirk of the Plains, why do we do what we do? Whether that is teaching Sunday school, whether that is uh, running the sound or preparing communion or opening and closing the church or whatever it is that, that you do here at Kirk of the Plains, why do you do it? Is it because you enjoy doing whatever that thing is that you do? Or, or maybe it's because it, it is to help Kirk of the Plains to be successful. You want us to be a growing church. You want us to, to uh, survive and to grow and to be a presence here. Uh, all those things are, are noble things. But, but I wonder, and this was really a, a challenge to my own heart, do I do this because I desire to see God glorified and his kingdom advance, not only here in Andover, but in the surrounding communities as well. You know, that that's the focus. That, that what we do here is not just to make Crook of the Plains better, but it's to see God's kingdom to go forth. Because we can do a lot of things at Kirk of the Plains. We can do a bunch of things at Kirk of the Plains. And really it has great little to no impact upon the kingdom of God. It could be stuff that we do in our own strength. Or we only do it for our own body. Or things like that. But is it something where the kingdom of God is the, our focus as his people? Now it's interesting as you look at this list in, in this chapter. There are 41 different groups of people. I think I counted that right. But 41 different groups of people, and they're working together out of love for God and love for his kingdom and love for his church, right? Now you say his church, the church was in the New Testament. Well, the church is God's people, okay? And in the Old Testament, Israel was the church, okay? So they're doing it for God's church. One commentator points out, he said, This is the people of God in all fullness, seeking holiness by sacrificing their resources and endangering their lives so as to dwell with God in Jerusalem. They wanted to be with their God and to see his name glorified. And that's their goal, that they would be the people of God dwelling in the city of God where God made his name to dwell. And so their united focus was on the kingdom of God. Now, the only thing that's really noticeable, or notable, excuse me, about all these people is that there's nothing extraordinary about these people. They're just all ordinary people. I mean, look down through the list. You know, verse 32 talks about merchants. Verse 29, security officials. Uh, verses uh, 9 and 12, um, city officials. Verse 1, priests. They talk about Levites, women, goldsmith. None of them uh, were particularly gifted to build this wall. Have you ever thought about that? There were no builders listed here. I guess maybe the goldsmiths might have been about the closest to a craftsman that there was, but there was this was not their area of expertise. They uh, yet they joined the work for the sake of the kingdom of God. They were willing hands to do so, and I think that sometimes when we think of doing the work of God, we sometimes. Uh, as one person put it, we sometimes take on the Superman mentality. 
and where we think that it's the heroes in the church that do the work. It's the people who are really gifted. It's the outgoing people. They're the people who do the work of the church. And then the ordinary people, they just stand by. You know, you've probably heard the pastors use the illustration how the church can sometimes be like a football game where you have thousands of people on the stand watching and you have 11 people just like working till they're almost ready to die. You know, trying to, 11 men on each side, trying to, you know, uh, win, a, win a game. Uh, so it can, it, can, it can be like that. But here in Nehemiah chapter 3, there are no heroes and there are no bystanders. Everyone, everyone, all the ordinary people join in the work of the kingdom of God. And you'll notice in verse 12 that even the daughters of one of the leaders joined in the work. Now that may not sound strange to us in our day and time because women do pretty much everything that, that men do. But in biblical days, women didn't do construction work. And so that was really an oddity. Now, you know, whether he only had daughters, we, you know, we don't know for certain. But uh, what we see is families coming together to do the work of God together. Everyone pitches in to do the work. No one said, well, I'm sorry, this isn't my area of expertise. Or, you know, that's not my spiritual gift. So, you know, I, I can't do that. Everyone came to do the work of God. Well, the rebuilding of the wall was accomplished through this kind of teamwork of everyone joining together. But I want you to understand it's more than just teamwork. It's not a sense that everybody, you know, gathered around the campfire and sang kumbaya and said, we're going to do this together, you know, we're all one, and we swayed and had this big emotional moment. It wasn't that, as we'll, we'll see later on in the sermon, there's much more to this that motivates them than just that sense of teamwork. But there was that sense of unity. You know, I want you to see in this point that the work of God goes forward through the efforts of ordinary people. We must not forget that, that the work of God goes forward through the efforts of ordinary people. Uh, you can advance the kingdom of God. You don't have to be a hero. You don't have to be an expert. Kids, you don't even have to be an adult to do the work of the kingdom of God. Or young people in your teens, you don't have to wait till you're 18 until you can do something that's significant for the kingdom of God. You know, kids, it might be something as simple as you're picking up hymn books and Bibles and putting them back away. Or it might be that you're looking around the congregation. And, you know, while we're a fairly young congregation, God is beginning to add some of us to this congregation, right, that has some gray hairs and, and stuff like that. And there's even some in our congregation who are elderly to the point that they actually are not able to be with us and haven't been with us for months because of uh, physical difficulties. And I'm thinking of Lillian and, and Jonathan and, and his brother David who's caring for him and stuff. They're not able to be here. And what a ministry it is, kids, to draw a picture and to ask your parents, say, could you mail this to them just to let them know that I'm thinking about them and I'm praying for them. So you don't have to be some expert, kids. Even you can minister and do the work of the kingdom of God. Now, I do want to say a little bit about the building process. Um, there were some sections of the wall that were totally gone. And like in verse 1 where the priests uh, were building, uh, it looks like everything was gone. And so they actually had to build everything from scratch. But most of the wall was a rebuilding project, was just sort of repairing 
what was already there. But the entire wall was rebuilt. And it sort of started at the northeast corner of the city, which is at the Sheep Gate. And then they, the works that he describes sort of goes counterclockwise until then in verse, I think it's verse 32, where, where you sort of end up back at the Sheep Gate. So the entire wall was built. It was sort of reformed and... Uh, not reformed as we're reformed, but you know, it was sort of changed in the sense that uh, there was, um, it wasn't taken down as low. It went a little bit higher up in the Kidron Valley and stuff. So the wall was changed just a little bit, but still it was completed. But it was done so quickly that uh, Sanballat, if you remember, he was the guy who was the enemy of the Jews. He didn't like Nehemiah. We saw him at the end of chapter 2. He and his, his cronies were opposing Nehemiah, trying to discourage the people. And when he saw the work that was being done, we read in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 2, Sambalat said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? In other words, these guys are booking. They're getting this wall done. And stuff. And, you know, uh, I think you've probably heard the phrase, many hands make light work. And, and that's very true. And it shows us how God has designed his church to function in doing the work of the kingdom of God. It's not any one person's job to do anything. Or there's not some people that are more important. You know, as we think about this first point of just ordinary people being involved, I just want to think of a, a couple of points of application. First of all, uh, by working together in unity, we express our love for God, right? As we work together in unity, we express our love for God, right? We are, we are making it evident to each other and to the world that we love God. Because, you know, if you remember from Galatians chapter 5, at the beginning of Galatians 5, it talks about the, the battle between the spirit and the flesh, right? And then it, then it goes on and Paul talks about the works of the flesh. And the works of the flesh include many things, but, but a, a lot of it has to do with our relationships with other people. And it, and it creates divisions. It creates anger. It, it, it creates uh, all kinds of things that destroy our relationship. Um, but as, as you look on into Galatians 5, then it ends the chapter by talking about the work of the Spirit. Or actually, not the work of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, as the Spirit of God is working in us, then He produces this fruit of the Spirit, which is really, uh, in many sense, a supernatural working of selflessness in our hearts. So anytime we see uh, a sense in which we are not living for our own desires and our own agendas, but we instead are serving and especially serving in the kingdom of God, that comes as a result of the work of God in our hearts. And our response to that, to God, is one of love. And so uh, when you see people working together in unity in a selfless way, uh, you are seeing them express their love for God and what he's done in their hearts. And just imagine the testimony that that is to the world around us. I mean, what's the motto that the world has for the church? You know, the world says things about the church like, well, the church is irrelevant. 
Or, or the church is divided. The church is full of hypocrites who want to speak about love, but then they, they shoot their wounded. You know, you hear those kind of things of the church, but imagine what that would look like to the world as, as, as the church loves one another and is working alongside one another uh, for the building up of the kingdom of God. You know, that would cause them to say, why are you guys different? What is going on? I don't understand this. You're not like Christians that I know. And we can give testimony to the work that God is doing in our hearts and say, oh, if you only knew my heart, I am incredibly selfish. But praise be to God. He is at work in and through me and in and through our body as well. And I have to say as a pastor, I am so thankful. I'm not saying we do everything perfectly as a church, but I am very thankful for the unity that God has given us and for the love that I see that you show to one another. May we continue to, to walk in that grace that God gives to us. But the other thing that we see uh, working together, it expresses our mutual love for each other. Which, that flows out of our love for God. As we love God, then we will love other people as well. And, uh, and we express that love oftentimes when we pull our weight alongside our brothers and sisters. We show our brothers and sisters that we love them that we care for them, that we want to see that they are built up. Uh, and, and as we're working side by side, that's what we are expressing. And it's been great to see you do that. As you have laid aside your own needs and the things, your schedules and stuff, and I've seen you drop everything, even though I know your lives are busy, and I've seen you reach out to people in our congregation and to love them and care for them. What a blessing. See, in the body of Christ, God has created and saved us to need each other. When we, uh, when we fill our function in the local body, we not only serve God, but we bless others. And so, as you engage in the kingdom of God, you love God and you love others. So, we just see ordinary people at work here. The second thing we see here is that the leaders sort of set the tone uh, in verse 1. Uh, the very first thing that is mentioned is Eliashib, who is the high priest, okay, along with the other high priest. It says, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hanel. So the priests did a significant work on the wall, and not only here in verse 1, but Throughout this passage, in a couple of different places, we see the priests mentioned and the work that they had done. But they consecrated their work to the Lord. Now, many commentators, and I have a tendency to agree with them, that uh, they indicate that this consecration meant that not only was this portion of the work on the wall consecrated or set apart or holy to the Lord, but all of this work was set apart to the Lord. And, uh, you know, and it was... Through the leadership of the priests. Now, obviously, the high priest was someone who was very important in Jewish society. I mean, you think about it. This is the man who once a year would go into the Holy of Holies. No one else could do that. But he was called by God to do that, to go into the Holy of Holies. Uh, but he didn't think of himself as too important to do the work of the rebuilding. And so we see here in, this, uh, in, the, in these verses... The servant leadership that's that's demonstrated 
the priest, and especially the high priest, you know, didn't normally do this kind of uh, menial work. And that probably doesn't mean that they thought themselves too important to do that. There might have been priests that thought that. But I think for the most part, they didn't probably think that. But their giftedness and their special calling lay elsewhere. And I'm sure they had plenty to do in the temple. But when God says, I'm changing your work schedule this week, and this is what I want you to do, they were willing to lay aside those things and to do the things that God was calling them to do. And there's no hint here that they were coerced by Nehemiah to do this. They gladly and they willingly did this for the building up of the kingdom of God and the glory of God. Now, I, th I think we need to understand that not everything in God's kingdom is, is pretty. Ministry is messy, brothers and sisters. And, and that's what we see. These priests were willing to get their hands dirty. Uh, ministry is not only messy, but it's oftentimes inconvenient. And if you have teenagers in your home, you understand what I'm talking about. Not because I'm like anti-teenager. I love, I love all you young people. But I remember those days when our teenagers wanted to talk. And they had this big life problem that they're like, Mom, Dad, I need to talk about this. Inevitably, they never thought about it till 1130 at night. You know, ministry is never convenient, all right? You know, it's always in those times when you're thinking, I got to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning because I got to go to work. And you get to sleep in a little bit, but you're like, but I love you. And, and you stay up till 2 o'clock talking to them and helping them to work through those things. But that's just, that's just the way it is. And, uh, and, and praise God for that. Uh, so... Uh, I think that these priests here were mentioned first just to show that they were an example to the people. But they weren't the only examples. If you look at verses 9 and verses 12, you'll see other rulers of districts that led in a sacrificial way as well. And not only in those two verses, there's actually some other mentions as well. But there's one that stands out in terms of rulers and their leadership, and that's in verse 5. Uh, I wish I could say that all the leaders in this passage uh, were godly examples of servant leadership. But in verse 5, we read of the nobles of Tekoites, okay? And it says this, And next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Now that's, that's rather striking, isn't it? The people would serve the Tekoites, but the rulers would not. Now, it, the word Lord there in the ESV is written as if it refers to God. And, and that very much could be the proper interpretation. But that also, it's, it's in the plural. So there are some who believe that that's a reference to lords or supervisors. Um, and so therefore, uh, it's not referring to they wouldn't submit to the Lord. But... There's a, in one sense, it really doesn't matter what that word means. Not that I don't, I'm not saying that it doesn't matter what the Word of God says. But I'm just saying because if we refuse to submit to godly leadership that God has placed over us, then we in essence are not submitting to God. So it doesn't really matter in one sense whether it's talking about the Lord or the lords that God had set up over them. I mean, it's just like what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. He said, whatever you do, work it heartily as for the Lord and not for men. In other words, when you do your job, when, uh, when you go to work, uh, you do that not for your boss, but you do that because who you're really serving 
is the Lord. He's the real authority that's over you. Paul just comes right out and says you are serving the Lord Christ. And that's sort of the attitude here, that regardless, they were not serving God. Even if it was that they were refusing to serve those that were in them. And it's interesting that when it says that they would not stoop to serve the Lord, that's actually the imagery, it's sort of an agricultural image, uh, to describe a stiff-necked oxen who you couldn't get to be uh, yoked. He refused to put on the yoke, and he kept fighting that. And, uh, you know, so, so you see here the priests who are humble to serve. You see the other leaders here. But the aristocrats of Tekoa see it beneath them. It is their pride that is uh, too much for them. And pride is a cruel enemy. It inflates our self-importance, brothers and sisters. It sort of exalts us. And not only that, and I want you to hear me here, pride makes holiness impossible. You hear me? Pride makes holiness impossible. It, it, pride views humility as a weakness rather than a virtue. It, it deflects our steps away from the cross. Because why, why is that so? Because the cross calls us to come and to die to self. And pride cannot do that. And so it always moves away from the cross. Pride refuses even to see Christ is the noblest example. And pride forgets that Christ washed the feet of his disciples in John chapter 13 uh, to show the example that he was about to do in giving his life uh, for his people. And unfortunately, I have to say sadly, uh, we too are likely to find people in the church who are like this as well, who don't put their shoulder to the work. And, and I think one of the reasons why that's so sad is especially because Jesus uh, was always acting as a servant. Jesus said in Luke 22, 27, but I am among you as the one who serves. Christ, even our Lord, the very God of very God, comes as a servant. So if we're to be like Jesus, then we must serve as he serves. And so as we think about sort of the, the summary of this point, it's important for us to understand that those who are called to be leaders in the church are called to lead by an example, and that is an example as a servant. And, and Paul talks about that in 1 Peter chapter 5, right? Uh, we need to, to hear this, brothers and sisters, uh, as we pray for our elders, that they would be these kind of men. As we pray for future elders, as we have our own elders uh, one day, uh, Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Even as the church is built up by servant leaders, the church needs more than just servant leaders, though. It also needs uh, people who are faithful. And that's the third thing I want us to see, that they worked faithfully. Uh, each of us is to faithfully serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, has God given us faithful leaders? I, I think he has. I'm so thankful for the men that are leading Kirk of the Plains. And if that's the case, then 
are we willing to join them in, in the work of the ministry of the kingdom of God? Uh, there, there are many examples of serving, as I, as I said earlier, giving a cup of cold water, Jesus says, to someone who is in need is serving, visiting shut-ins, praying for each other, inviting unbelievers to your house to get to know them and to have every opportunity to share Christ with them. All of these are ways in which we can serve in the building up of the kingdom of God. But like this project of rebuilding the wall, sometimes we think that to serve in the kingdom of God, we have to do something great, something spectacular uh, in that. But that's not true. Uh, we just have to be faithful in the things and the things that the Lord has given us to do. Look at verse 13. I, I won't read it there, but you can see there Hanan and the inhabitants, how they not only built the wall, but they set the doors and the bolts and the bars. And that phrase is repeated over and over. And I want you to see that they faithfully worked until the work was done. They didn't work until it was half done. They didn't work until it was difficult. But they, and they didn't work in, until it became inconvenient. They sat and did the work that they were to do. But, but not only was it the inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem, but you see in this list uh, um, a list of eight nearby cities okay, that were within a 15 to 20 mile radius of Jerusalem. And the people from those cities came and helped rebuild the wall. Uh, Jericho, Tekoa, Gibeon, Mizpah, uh, Zainal, uh, Beth Hakarim, Beth Zur, and Kaliah. All of those were uh, people who came from other cities and, and gave of themselves for the building of the wall. Why? For, why? I, I don't know for certain. I assume it was for the, the glory of God. I'm sure they had things to do in their own towns, but they did that. But we see that same spirit that God gave to those people to come and to be part of that work uh, in the church today. Uh, every week, millions of Christians sacrificially donate money for projects that they never will see. They support missionaries, maybe that they've only met once, uh, and to go to countries that uh, people will never be able to visit themselves. But they have a heart that people would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so they support those missionaries. Or maybe there's people who pray faithfully for different ministries that they've never participated in, and they've only heard of a need, and they lift up those prayers. Maybe it's you praying through the prayer list and praying for the persecuted church. And you will never see those saints until we get to heaven in glory. But even now, you pray for them because God has laid that upon your heart. You see, those who love Christ have been liberated from the curse of self selfishness and find their great joy in doing something. Uh, for the sake of God and, and for his people. And I just want to ask ourselves, do we see that as our responsibility to build the church? If you're a Christian, you're called to build the kingdom of God. Now, I know that Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's true. But God also uses means. You know, just like with a contractor. You know, a contractor uses a tool to do the work. He doesn't hammer with his hand. He uses a tool to drive that nail into the board, okay? And in the same way, God uses means. And those means are sitting right here in these chairs. The means are right here behind the pulpit. It is his people that, that he uses 
to, to do his work. Amen. And we are called to work faithfully for the building up of the kingdom of God. The last thing I want us to see is that they relied on their God. Uh, you know, normally when you read a list like this, you would expect there to be some kind of statement like, and this is the project of Nehemiah. Look at what he did, you know. Um, that would have been very um, typical for the day and the time in which this was written. I mean, think about Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he, was a, he was actually the man who was responsible for knocking down this wall. But, uh, you know, as, as Nebuchadnezzar was sort of surveying his kingdom, he says in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, he says, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Now God then immediately dealt with his pride, and he humbled him. And, and it's interesting that uh, Nebuchadnezzar would take credit. I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar didn't even lift a finger to build anything in Babylon, but he took all the credit. You know, but there, there, it is obvious that Nehemiah's name is missing from Nehemiah chapter 3. That the Nehemiah who was leading this, most likely organizing everything, communicating with people, uh, leading this to make sure that everything worked together, that he, he wasn't mentioned at all. As a matter of fact, he seems to give credit to the people for the work that they do. And even more than that, when the work was done in Nehemiah chapter 6, uh, we read in Nehemiah 6.16, this work has been accomplished with the help of our God. He recognizes that it is God that does that work. Uh, through his people to accomplish his, his purpose. And God still does the same thing today. God still does the same thing today. Uh, if our church is a church that is united, if our church is a church that is working as one man towards the purpose of building up the kingdom of God, it is because God is at work in our midst. And, and so uh, as we... I just want to encourage us as we think about that to think about that more carefully and, and what the Lord might want us to do. I think sometimes when we think about the work of the church, you know, the temptation can be to think, okay, now what can I sacrifice out of my schedule to give to maybe meet this need or that need or this need? Whereas I, I really was challenged this week that our focus as his people needs to be this is God's kingdom. What is he calling me to do? And maybe I need to not just give a little bit of my schedule. Maybe I need to give a lot more. Or maybe I'm giving too much right now, and I need to back off a little bit. You know, God wants me to, yes, minister in his church, but maybe he also wants me to maybe minister in my home a little bit more. Maybe I've been neglecting my home. But is our focus one of trusting the Lord and seeking to, to follow his leading in regards of what he wants us to do. We cannot build on our own, uh, but praise God, we don't have to. He is the one that is doing his work in and through us. We just need to look to him. We are not doing it on our own, and we must expectantly look to God to do his work. And, and I would encourage us that as we do that, let's not just look and see what we can do as a, a body our size, but just to say, what does God want to do through us? I mean, just like we were having a fast team meeting last night, and I was confessing my sins to the fast team, 
I said, uh, you know, I, I wrestle with this building thing because it's just so beyond us. But I said, I would also be the guy that's standing outside the walls of Jericho, measuring the walls and going, there's no way. We can't take this city. We can't do that. And I said, you know what would have happened? The walls would have fallen on top of me because they fell outwards. Because while I'm measuring the city thinking we can't do this, God would have just done it. You know, and you know, I'm praying not only about this building, but for many other things that the Lord would bring things to us as a church that is beyond us to do so that we might be forced to turn to Him and to do everything that we do out of our weakness and do it in His strength, to His glory and His praise. Amen? Let me just close by reading just one uh, passage from Romans chapter 12. If you want to turn there, Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. I think this is just a great summary of what Nehemiah 3 is all about. And let us listen as God speaks to us through his word this morning. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we are many members, and the members don't all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's bow our heads this morning and let us just take a moment to reflect upon the Word of God that was spoken this morning. Father, I'm just really struck by the fact that here were your people who were beaten down and discouraged. And what did you do? But you sent a man to come and to call them to do something that's impossible. Uh, and yet, Lord, you did that work through them. And God, we thank you that you are a God who, who works through your people. And you do uh, amazingly more than all that we can uh, even ask or imagine, Lord. Uh, because you are such a great God. And so, Lord, I pray that you would take the blinders off of our eyes. Help us each to examine our own hearts, Lord, to see if the things that we're doing are things that are honoring to you, uh, uh, Lord, or, or maybe they're just things that keep us busy or they're things that we want to do. And help us, Lord, to, to follow you and pray that you would use Kirk of the Plains as your tool, Lord, to, to glorify yourself and to build up your kingdom. Of course, Lord, we pray not just for our own body, 
but for the other churches in the area as well, especially our, our sister PCA churches. God, that you would do a mighty and a great work, uh, that you would bring about a revival in our communities. Uh, Lord, we thank you so much, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.